Welcome to episode 24 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'd ask that if you like this podcast and would like it to continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with your friends. And check out our website at historystoriesformyson.com. Today, I will tell you the story of Galileo Galilei. Rome, 1633, the offices of the Roman Inquisition. Galileo Galilei stands accused of heresy. Despite prior warnings from inquisitors, Galileo has continued to espouse a dangerous idea, an idea church censors had spent decades repressing, pulling any mentions of it from the bookshelves banning publications of any new books on the subject, and meeting out severe punishments to violators. Indeed, only 33 years earlier, a former priest by the name of Giordano Bruno had been literally burned at the stake, in part for espousing this very dangerous idea. What was this idea which the censors and the Inquisition found so threatening. What was this idea that they said could shake the very foundations of society, an idea that could lead to widespread violence by causing people to doubt known truths and even the very authority of the church? This dangerous idea, this incitement to blasphemy and violence, was the idea that the earth was not, in fact, the center of creation. Rather, Galileo had claimed and persisted in claiming, even after being told to renounce the belief that the Earth orbited around the Sun rather than the other way around. To make matters worse, he purported to prove it by painstaking observations of the heavens through a new contraption which he had greatly improved called a telescope, which allowed him to observe the orbits of the planets and discover that their movements were consistent with moving around the sun and not the earth. He'd even published a book making that argument, spreading his heresy to any reader who happened to cross it. The public needed to be protected from this offensive belief. Galileo was found to be strongly suspected of heresy. He had to renounce this heresy and affirmatively declared that the earth was in fact the center of the universe. If he did not, well, the Inquisition had many tools at its disposal to help wayward souls see the truth. The stake was only the last of them. How did Galileo get to this point, and why? And that is a story that begins in Pisa. Yes, the same Pisa with the Leaning Tower. On the 15th of February, 1564, Galileo Galilei was the first child of a musician and composer. 
As was common in this part of Italy at the time, the firstborn son's given name reflected the family name. Galileo had the great good fortune to be born in a very intellectually stimulating time, the Renaissance, and to be the son of a true Renaissance man. Galileo's father, Vincenzo, was a lutenist composer and music theorist. His parents were educated, owned books, and discussed ideas. Galileo himself became an accomplished musician in his own right, and critically, for his later discoveries, learned the relationship between music and mathematics. Before long, he started to see the math in other things, paintings, including his own, and of course the real world. It was during this time he began to see, as he would later say, that the entire universe is written in the language of mathematics. Ironically, given his later troubles with the church, Galileo initially considered a career in the priesthood. Indeed, for his entire life, he was a deeply religious man. But his father convinced him to try medicine instead. Galileo's family barely had the money to scrape together to send him to university, and his dad hoped a lucrative medical practice would give the boy financial security that he had never had. Unfortunately for that plan, Galileo didn't find the subject interesting. He found himself daydreaming during medical lectures. One day, as his professor droned on, Galileo found himself fixated on a chandelier that swung overhead, pushed back and forth by the wind of the drafty old lecture hall. He noticed that the chandelier took the same amount of time to swing back and forth no matter how far it swung. He timed it with his own heartbeat. When he returned home that evening, he hung two pendulums of identical length and swung one hard and one softly. Counterintuitively, they both took the exact same amount of time to swing back and forth. Only by changing the length of the string could you change the time period for the swings. This is the principle upon which all pendulum clocks work, and it fascinated him. He was stunned by the mathematical harmony of it, where the increased speed of the pendulum in larger swings was precisely counterbalanced by the additional distance the pendulum had to go, so that the overall time was always the same for one back and forth of the string. Mathematical balance was written into the structure of reality itself. He was hooked. And soon sneaking away from his medical studies to attend geometry lectures, Eventually, he broke the news to his father, who was somewhat disappointed. Physicians made a lot more money than mathematicians, but ultimately supported his son's decision. Galileo eagerly attended lectures on physics, mathematics, and other sciences that at the time were grouped together in a category known as natural philosophy. His professors found him brilliant, but also frustratingly skeptical. Unlike most students, he wouldn't just accept what he was told was true by authoritative professors. Now, at the time, most scientific knowledge was based on the classical teachings of Aristotle, but Galileo noticed something strange. His professors taught Aristotle's conclusions, but they didn't seem to follow his methods. Hadn't Aristotle revealed that theories about the natural world had to be tested by the evidence of your own senses? Yet his professors seemed to want him to just accept 
that the theories of Aristotle were true. One classic example has to do with the speed of falling bodies. Aristotle had theorized, and somehow never tested, that a heavier object would fall more quickly than a lighter object. Galileo wasn't so sure. He would have known that some light objects with a lot of surface area, like feathers, fell slowly because of wind resistance, but if you could take two objects with negligible wind resistance and different weights, like a large cannonball and a small one, would they truly fall at different speeds? To test it, he climbed to the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and dropped the heavy ball and a light one at the same time. Sure enough, they hit the ground simultaneously, or close enough to make no difference, proving that all objects fall at the same speed regardless of weight, except, of course, to the degree slowed by wind resistance. Modern experiments have confirmed that every object, no matter how light or heavy, falls the same speed in a vacuum, or you can take wind resistance out of it. Amazingly, most of the stodgy professors who witnessed the event continued to deny the evidence of their own eyes and insist that Aristotle had been right. This phenomenon of even intelligent people ignoring evidence when it contradicted their established beliefs would be a thorn in Galileo's side for the remainder of his life. Eventually, Galileo's father ran out of money to pay for his education, but by that time, Galileo had moved far enough along in his studies that he was able to continue his work on his own, gaining some renown and income inventing practical applications of his natural observations, including an early thermometer, and publishing a book about his design for a hydrostatic balance, which is a way of determining an object's density by comparing its weight to an equal volume of water, which was extremely useful to jewelers and merchants as a way of detecting when someone had mixed precious metals with other less valuable materials, which had a different density that you could detect by this method. In 1589, still only 25 years old, Galileo was appointed chair of mathematics in Pisa, the same place he'd been a student just a few short years before. He still found his colleagues stodgy and quarreled with the university in odd ways, he refused to wear the heavy robes mandated for professors, finding them uncomfortable and pretentious. The university docked his already meager pay for this defiance. Still, he might have stayed there if he had not had a combination of bad luck and the integrity to anger a powerful figure. Giovanni de' Medici, son of one of the most powerful families in the world at the time, fancied himself an engineer had designed a dredging machine he claimed could be used to clear out harbors. He asked Galileo to examine his designs and confirm that his machine would work. Galileo carefully examined the designs and instead concluded the machine would not work and reported his findings. He was right. Medici's machine never worked. But that was not the answer the powerful young man was looking for, and he used his considerable influence to try to make Galileo unemployable. Eventually, Galileo concluded his best move was to get out of the area, which he did, accepting a posting at the University of Padua in 1592, 
where he would teach geometry, mechanics, and astronomy until 1610. He was a highly popular professor whose lectures were very well attended. He also continued his scientific explorations, making significant discoveries about the nature of motion, precursors to Isaac Newton's laws of motion, and also making lots of astronomical observations. In addition, unlike most of his contemporary natural philosophers, he made useful devices. He was, in modern terms, an engineer as well as a scientist. He designed everything from siege engines to irrigation pumps. Most significantly, he greatly improved the telescope, achieving a previously unimaginable 30 times magnification, good enough to make it a practical tool for observing the solar system. It was, of course, what he observed through his greatly improved telescope that would make him most famous, and which nearly got him killed. He discovered that the moon, rather than being a perfect sphere as previously assumed, was actually a cratered and mountainous landscape. He also discovered four moons orbiting Jupiter. This alone was a momentous observation since it was previously believed all celestial objects orbited the Earth. Then he turned his gaze on Venus and observed something very interesting. Venus went through phases just like our moon. But unlike the moon, it appeared much smaller when it was in the new phase, i.e. when it was not illuminated by direct sunlight, than when it was in the full phase, i.e. when it was illuminated by direct sunlight. There was only one explanation for this that made sense. Venus was smaller when it was full because it was on the opposite side of the sun when its face was illuminated. It was always on the opposite side of the sun when its face was illuminated. You can visualize this by thinking of an ordinary lamp in an otherwise dark room. Imagine you take an object, any opaque object, let's say a book, uh, and hold it up in between your eyes and the lamp. The book will appear large since it's close to your eyes, and the side facing you will be dark because the book is in between your eyes and the lamp. The side of the book being illuminated by the lamp is facing away from you. Now imagine without moving your body, you hold the book somewhere behind the light. Now the book will appear smaller since it's farther away from you, and the side of the book facing you will be brightly lit since it's the same side being illuminated by the lamp. So this realization that the Earth and Venus were both orbiting the Sun and that sometimes Venus was on the opposite side of the Sun and therefore couldn't be orbiting the Earth was what gave Galileo his key clue to what was happening. He then made some more complicated observations about the orbits of planets, the shape of which seemed to indicate they were going around the sun rather than the earth, uh, and all of it pointed to what's called the heliocentric model of the universe, in which the earth and the other planets orbit the sun. Now, he wasn't the first person to believe this, but his observations were the best proof up to that time that it was true. It's worth pausing for a second to appreciate how revolutionary this was. Probably everyone listening to this learned when they were small children that the Earth revolves around the sun. So to us, it seems obvious. But before you get too smug in your superiority to 17th century people, 
Consider this. How do you know that the Earth goes around the sun? Have you taken a telescope, gazed at the heavens, and made your own painstaking observations to confirm that this is true? I'm willing to bet most of us haven't, which means that most of us living today believe the Earth goes around the sun for exactly the same reason that most people in Galileo's time believe the sun went around the Earth. We believe it because that's what educated people in our time are taught, just as educated people in Galileo's time were taught that the sun goes around the Earth. Most people, then as now, accept what they're taught as children. Then put yourself in the shoes of someone living at the time. Here was Galileo saying, your teacher's got it all wrong. Here he was saying, everything educated people had been taught about how the universe worked for 2,000 years was wrong. And try to imagine what it would feel like if some scientist suddenly came out with proof that everything you thought you knew about the universe was simply false. Struggling to even come up with a comparison that would be equally mind-blowing today. Maybe if someone proved our reality was a computer simulation. It freaked people out. And it particularly freaked out the people in charge of the most powerful authority in Galileo's world, the Catholic Church. The Church at the time had an inquisition to seek out heretical ideas and a vast censorship apparatus with the power to suppress the publication of dangerous ideas. After considering Galileo's writings at length, the Inquisition concluded in 1616 that the heliocentric model of the universe was heresy. It contradicted, in their view, certain passages of scripture which they believed indicated the earth was fixed and unmoving. They informed Galileo of their decision. He was forbidden to speak about, write about, or even think that the earth orbited the sun. He was forbidden to even hold the heretical belief in his own mind. For 16 years, he obeyed the requirement not to publicly say anything about the topic. But then, in 1632, believing the world had changed and there was some support for his ideas even in the church, he tried again. He published a book called Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief Systems. In it, he presented two characters arguing, with one taking the position that the Earth orbited the sun, heliocentrism, and the other arguing that the sun orbited the Earth, geocentrism. He argued that he was not advocating heliocentrism, which he'd been forbidden to do. Rather, he was just presenting a hypothetical dialogue in which both positions were presented equally. The Inquisition censors didn't buy it, particularly since the character advocating the geocentric view, who was called Simplicito, uh, was presented as something of a fool whose arguments were 
clearly inferior to that of the character arguing for the heliocentric view. They thought this was a thinly veneered advocacy for the very ideas Galileo had been ordered not to even hold. They told him he had to change the book to state explicitly that the matters discussed weren't facts but merely opinions and present the geocentric view more favorably. Eventually, they went further and banned the book altogether, seizing all published copies from booksellers and people known to have purchased it and prohibiting publishers from printing any more copies. As for Galileo, he was in deep danger. This was a time when censorship was enforced with extreme brutality. The Inquisition tortured and, in the most extreme cases, burned heretics at the stake. Indeed, they had done so recently. Galileo was given a stark choice. He could recant and state publicly that heliocentrism was false, in which case he would only be imprisoned. Or he could face torture and death. Galileo was a stubborn man who had flouted previous attempts to censor his work, but he wasn't suicidal. He said the words he was required to say, though some reports say that as he was led out of the Inquisition chamber, he was heard to mutter, and yet it moves. It's fortunate for science Galileo didn't die in Rome. He convinced church authorities to commute his imprisonment to house arrest in his home near Florence. There he continued to work for another decade. He'd been forbidden from ever publishing anything again, but he quietly defied the Inquisition by continuing to write and having his work smuggled out of the country so that it could be published in Holland, where the Inquisition censors couldn't reach. Some of his best work was written during this period. He died at home, in the home he hadn't left for nearly a decade, in 1642. It's hard to overstate the legacy of Galileo. He's often called the father of the scientific method. As impressive as his own discoveries were, his greatest influence may have been and showing others how to discover the world for themselves. He demonstrated a method for working out how the world worked by systematic experiments and observations of testing a theory against observed reality to see if it could be disproved. He wasn't the only one who helped develop the scientific method, but he was one of the earliest since ancient times, and he took it further than even the best of the ancients, devising experiments to disprove theories even Aristotle never thought to test. Galileo's way of thinking, the scientific method, is the foundation for every scientific and technological advancement we've enjoyed in the last 400 years. His legacy is also one of defying censorship. Yes, it's true that he publicly recanted rather than be murdered, but he never really stopped fighting for his beliefs. He survived so that he could continue to circulate his ideas. He understood what the Inquisition did not, that censorship always fails in the long run. Ideas are slippery things, and true ideas eventually will win out no matter how hard those in authority try to stamp them out. It took a while, 
The Catholic Church didn't officially remove all of Galileo's books from the Index of Prohibited Works until 1835, almost 200 years after his death. In 1992, 350 years after Galileo's death, the Pope formally acknowledged that the Church had erred in condemning him. Better late than never.